Good morning, everybody. Good to see you all here on an ugly, ugly day, um, but a blessed day to be able to gather and worship our Lord together. Um, so if you've got a marker, mark the text that um, Brother Daniel uh, read to us. I know some of you guys are using electronic Bible, so if you're using an electronic Bible, I don't know how to do that. But, uh, but if you've got a hard copy, mark that text. We're not going to start there, but we are going to come back to that text here in a, in a few minutes um, as we discuss the Word of God together. Uh, you ever been a part of a group, um, whether it's at work? or at school, um, where, where you had like a few people in the group who were really like, they were working hard on whatever the project was, whatever the, the uh, matter was that you're supposed to be addressing. They, you had a few people who were laboring to, um, to work hard for the good of the group. While there are others in the group um, who are not pulling their weight, uh, not doing their job, slacking, and leaving, uh, leaving more work for you to do. Antonio and I have many conversations like this, sometimes about experiences he has in school, both as a teacher and as a student. Um, how does it feel to be a part of a group like that? Uh, how does it feel to be a part of a group like that? Especially if you're the one doing all the hard work, you know? Um, you're working, you're laboring, but there's your coworkers over there, there's your partners, and they ain't doing nothing. Um, they're just sitting around hoping that somebody else is going to do their job as well as their own. Um, not fun to be in a group like that. What if the work that you're doing, though, is really important? What if the work that you're doing is really important? All right, imagine what if you were chosen by the president on some sort of special commission where you're going to be working and laboring on some sort of special project for the betterment of your city or the betterment of your nation or betterment of the world at large. Um, how hard would you work on that job? How, how much, how difficult would your labor be to ensure that you did a good job? Um, and how would you feel if the people that were chosen to work alongside you are nowhere to be found. They're, they're, they're slagging. They may show up to meetings, but they're not actually doing anything. They're not actually contributing. Um, that's hard. That's a hard spot to be in. Um, what if you were chosen by the king of the universe for a mission entrusted with a special mission to carry out his work in the world? What I want to talk about with you today is uh, how the church works together. And I just want to give you at the beginning the, the kind of the, the main idea that I want to stress in this lesson today is that the whole church is charged with the business of the church. And the whole church is charged with the responsibility of carrying out the mission of the church. You often hear people talk about like in businesses, it's often 5% of the workers who do 95% of the work. Some of you guys can relate to that and know, like, know about that. That, that. That's a frustrating business to be a part of. Now, let me be clear here. The church is not a business. Uh, the church is a group of people who are called out by God. But the church does, like a business, have a mission in this world. The church does have tasks to accomplish in this world. And what I want us to think about today is that those tasks that God has called the church to accomplish are not just tasks for certain members of God's church to accomplish. 
those tasks that God has called the church to, to accomplish, the mission that God has called us to carry out in the world is a mission that we are all a part of if we are members of the Lord's body. Therefore, it is all of our responsibility to work together to do God's work in this world and carry out his mission. All right, here's what we want to do today. What I want to do is I want to start back in the Old Testament, and I want to look at uh, some things in the Old Testament, what I'll call the church in the Torah or the church in the law, the congregation of God's people. We're going to start in the book of Exodus, if you want to turn there, in verse nine, in chapter 19, Exodus chapter 19. What I want you to see is that this emphasis on the whole church being involved in carrying out the mission of God, the whole congregation being involved in that is a very old idea. It was stressed all throughout the Bible. And we're going to start with the church and the law. Then we'll look at the church that Christ built um, in the New Testament. And then we'll talk a little bit about what this means for us as the people of God today in this church. Um, so first, let's look at the church in the law. Um, look at Exodus chapter 19 and verse 4. And this is um, one of the first places where God really kind of gives his um, mission statement, you might say, to the people of God and says, hey, this is what I'm doing with you. This is the reason why I've, I've called you out and made you the separate holy people. This is the reason why I've delivered you out of slavery and brought you back to myself. Look with me, if you will, Exodus chapter 19. And uh, I want to begin reading in, uh, in verse 3. Moses goes up to God and the Lord God calls to him from the mountain. And this is what he says. He says, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. All right, notice what God is saying here to Moses. And then Moses is supposed to take this, and he's supposed to preach it to the whole congregation. What God is saying is, hey, here's why I, I took you out of Egypt. Here's why I delivered you from the Egyptians. Here's why I brought you back to myself. I'm doing something with you. I'm creating something with you. I'm creating a special people for my own possession, a kingdom of priests. And you need to ask yourself, what is a priest? What is a priest? Well, a priest is somebody who intercedes on behalf of the people um, to God. And, the, and a priest is somebody whose job is to declare the word of God to the people around. So God says, actually, I'm making you as a nation. You guys are going to be my kingdom of priests. You are all, in a sense, going to be priests. You are all going to work to represent me to the world, to carry out my work in this world and to fulfill my mission in this world. Now, notice it's conditional. If you'll obey my voice, if you'll keep my covenant, then you'll be my people. But that's the idea. God had a special people um, that he had set aside. And the question throughout the law of Moses was, and the question throughout the whole Testament was, whether or not the whole assembly, the whole congregation of God's people would carry out the charge given by God to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, 
to whether or not they would act like God's treasured possession or not. And I think probably you know, those of you who've read the Old Testament know, that sadly, often the answer to that question was no. Often the people of God, the, ki- the kingdom of priests, were not acting like priests of God at all. In fact, some of them, sometimes they were, offering, they were acting like priests of, of other idols uh, rather than God himself. In fact, if you read uh, Exodus 16 or Numbers 14 or Judges 8, often in the Old Testament, the only times the whole congregation was united was not in obedience to God, but in rebellion to him. Do you remember in Numbers uh, chapter 14? This is where I got my name from. Uh, Numbers 14 is when they sent the spies out into the land to spy out the land. And their job was to come back and tell the people like, hey, about the land and about what their job would be to go in and overtake it. And the spies come back and 10 of the 12 say, hey, great land, beautiful stuff there. They're bringing back these fruits that they've never seen before. Huge fruit, uh, clusters of grapes and things like that that they've never seen before. Uh, yeah, it looks beautiful over there, but those people are strong. We're like grasshoppers in their side. We can't deal. We can't do with this. And the whole congregation rallied behind the 10 and said, you know what? We can't do it. I know God said he would give us this land, but we can't do it. It's too dangerous, too risky. The whole congregation with only two stood up, Joshua and Caleb, and said, no, we must go and obey the Lord and take the land. Now, one of the things that we probably need to note from this is one thing that Israel teaches us is that congregational unity does not necessarily mean that a church is carrying out their mission or pleasing to the Lord. I think that's an important thing for us to think about today. We live in a world that prizes unity right now. Now, not in not in every case. There are exceptions to that. But I think our culture generally has has turned towards like we need to be one. We need to be one. Um, And I say amen to that. But amen to the fact that unity begins first with God. And if we're not united with God, then we can be united with one another. And that's not a good thing. Read, read the story of the Tower of Babel. People were one. They were united, but their, their unity wasn't leading them closer to God. It was leading them in rebellion against God. So uh, that's important to, to remember. Now, one of the things I want you to see, though, as, we, as we're looking through this, and, and a lot of this I'm just kind of introduced to you, and I'm going to encourage you to go back and read the scriptures and see this for yourself, is that throughout Israel's history, there's a huge emphasis in the Old Testament on the whole assembly coming together to and and this is the reason for it the whole assembly is is to come together to unite in obeying the lord the whole assembly comes together to hear what god says to listen to it to agree to obey it and then they go out to carry out the mission of god in the world they had a pattern of coming together the whole congregation is often how that is described or just look up in a concordance depending on your translation congregation or assembly and see how many passages you see an emphasis on the whole assembly coming together all throughout the torah all throughout the law all throughout the old testament now the emphasis here the important thing to see is that 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 ultimately god was bringing his people together so that they would learn together understand what God's will was together, and then go out and obey all that he had commanded them to do. By the way, I'd cite on this the book of Exodus, the book of Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, Ezra, and Nehemiah. I'm not going to give you all the text for that, but if you want, I I made a list of uh, all the places where 
the assembly is emphasized in the Old Testament. I can give that to you later. Um, but if I, if I cited them all now, you wouldn't have time to write them down or, or we'd be here all day. And I know some of you guys are, are okay. uh, <laughs> so you're like, yeah, amen. And others are like, I don't know. I don't know about that. Um, let me just say this, though. Look at Nehemiah chapter eight, verses one to eight, because I want to show you one place where the people of God come together. Nehemiah chapter eight, verses one to eight. If you have trouble finding Nehemiah like I do, just go to the middle of the Bible and work backwards um, from Psalms, just a couple of books backwards from Psalms. Nehemiah chapter 8, um, and I want to read verses 1 to 8. Listen to this. Nehemiah 8, beginning in verse 1. All the people gathered as one man at the square, which was in front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. And then Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it before the square, which was in front of the water gate, from early morning until midday. All right, there you go. Some of you guys are ready to get out of here. From early morning until midday in the presence of men, women, and those who could understand. And all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood at the wooden podium, which they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathias, Shemaiah, uh, Aniah, and I'm not going to read all of those names, but you can look down in verse 5 and notice this. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. Then they bowed low and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Then it says in verse seven that also the Levites explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. They read from the book of the law uh, of God, translating or interpreting or explaining to give the sense so that they understood the reading. You see what's happening here? All of God's people are coming together. Everybody can understand. Men, women, children, they're all there and they're hearing the word of God from morning to midday. They're listening to the word of God read. And then after the word of God is read, the, the priests are standing up and they're explaining the word to them so that they can understand what God's word is. Meanwhile, they're praising God. Ezra takes time to bless the Lord, the great God, and the people answer by saying, amen, amen. That's exactly right. We got the root word coming today straight from the phone. And this is the point that I want you to see here. God had appointed leaders whose job was to stand up and to admonish and to teach the assembly through the reading and explanation of God's word. Then the people voiced their approval and their agreement through the amen. Uh, you might see this actually all throughout the Old Testament. One place I'd uh, you could turn to and see this is in the book of uh, Deuteronomy 27, verses 15 to 26. And in Deuteronomy, we're coming right back to Nehemiah, so don't leave there too, too far. But in Deuteronomy chapter uh, 27 and verse 15, uh, th th this is a list of all the curses of the covenant. And after each of the curses that were given in Deuteronomy, after each curse is listed, the people shall answer and say, Amen. So they read the curse, and then the response of the people is amen to the curse. Now, what are the people doing here? Every time the, the curse is, is read, then the people respond, 
uh, amen. Look at verse 15. Curses the man who makes an idol and a molten image, an abomination to the Lord, the work of the hands of the craftsmen, and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall say, amen. Cursed is he who dishonors his father or mother, and all the people shall say, amen. Now, why is Moses here calling for the people to respond and say, amen? What are the people doing when they say, amen? They are agreeing that this is God's word. This is God's command, and we are going to abide by it, and we are going to obey it. You see the significance of that. Look at this also in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 5 and in verse uh, 13. Nehemiah chapter 5 and in verse 13. In this case, there was injustice rampant in the people of God. There were people, uh, God's people were taking advantage of others who were poor in their midst. So Nehemiah uh, brings, brings a rebuke against the people. And tells the people that they need to repent and give back the things they've taken from their brethren. And listen to this. In verse 13, Nehemiah says this. I also shook out the front of my garment and said, thus may God shake out every man from his house and from his possessions. Who does not fulfill this promise, even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen. And they praised the Lord. And then the people did according to this promise. Now, do you see the significance of this? There's two things I want to stress here. Number one, do you see the, do you see the emphasis given throughout the Old Testament on the congregation saying amen? That's part of how we participate in a congregational gathering is by saying amen. There's a significance to that. Because what we're doing is we're saying, yes, this is God's word. And therefore, I understand it. I agree with it, and I'm going to obey it. Amen. Now, I want you to think about this. I'm encouraged by this. I'm very encouraged by the fact that this congregation is uh, is getting a little bit louder when it comes to that. Uh, I think when we in our early days, when we started um, this congregation, we were a very quiet group, um, and uh, and particularly, uh, you wouldn't hear often in this setting uh, people saying "Amen." I'm very encouraged by the fact that I think that's changing because. Some of this, we people might say, well, that's cultural, like cultural differences. And to some extent, I might say, okay, with that. Yeah, maybe some cultures uh, may be more vocal than others. That may be true. But it's not just cultural in the Bible. It is biblical. The amen is how we all agree and how we show our agreement with one another. And that's the value of us when the word of God is being read, saying at the end of the reading, amen. That's the value when somebody gives an exhortation that comes from God's word that is in alignment with God's word, exhorting us to obey the commands of God. We say, amen. We do that because we are in agreement that we are not only hearers of God's word, but we are going to carry it out. And I want us to think about that. So, So I'm encouraging us to be more vocal. I'm also cautioning us here because if I say amen to something, I need to be willing to obey it. I shouldn't just be saying it and then walk out of here and then disregard the things that God has said. I need to be careful about my amens so that my amens are are in accordance with my lifestyle. And I hope that each of us will continue to say amen as we agree with the word of God and then to live out that amen through the way that we walk. The amen declares our covenant to obey the instructions, to keep the standards that God has given for the covenant community. Let me just add one more thing here from the Old Testament before we go to the New Testament. Um, When the whole church came together, when the whole congregation came together, uh, members of the congregation were permitted and actually encouraged to share 
godly concerns in the assembly when there were problems that had arisen that needed to be addressed. Let me show you one place where this takes place. Numbers chapter 27. Numbers chapter 27, verses 1 to 7. Numbers 27, beginning in verse 1. The daughters of Zelophehad, son of Heper, the son of Gilead, the son of Macher, the son of Manasseh, the families of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, came near. And these are the names of his daughters, Mala, Noah, Hagla, Milcah. I don't know that I'm saying all those names right, but I'm doing the best I can. And Tirzah. And they stood before Moses and before Eliezer, the priest, and before the leaders and all the congregation at the doorway of the tent of meeting, saying, Our fathers died in the wilderness. Our father died in the wilderness. Yet he was not among the company of those who gathered themselves together against the Lord in the company of Korah, but he died in his own sin. He had no sons. Why should the name of our father be withdrawn from among his family possession? Because he had no son. Give us a possession among our father's brothers. So Moses brought the case before the Lord and the Lord gives them instructions. The Lord said to Moses, verse seven, the daughters of Zelophehad are right in their statements. You shall surely give them a hereditary possession among their father's brothers. You shall transfer the inheritance of their father to them. Notice what's happening here. There's an issue that's come up in the congregation. These uh, daughters have no inheritance because uh, their father did not have a son, so they're left out. Normally, it was the males who, were, who, who received the, the land portion, the inheritance portion. So the daughters are saying, hey, we should get a portion. So they, they bring this concern before the whole congregation. Moses then takes it to God, and God says they're right. They're right. They should be given this. And what you're seeing here is that God permitted that when the whole congregation came together, members could bring their godly concerns and those concerns would be addressed in the assembly. Whether those concerns were actually in line with the will of God or not, uh, depended on the situation and depended on the concern. But when they were, then the congregation was then responsible for making sure that those things were righted, that they were that their needs were taken care of. Having said all of that, so that you might say, well, some of you might be thinking like, well, okay, so we're talking about the congregation of Israel here. We're not under like that old covenant that they are. So why are we spending so much time talking about the congregation of Israel? And again, I'm just going to cite two whole books for you to read on this. Read the Gospel of Luke and read the book of Acts and notice how often the Lord refers to what he's doing through the church of God built by Christ in the New Testament as a fulfillment of what he did in Israel. In fact, often in Luke and Acts, the church is referred to as Israel, referred to as the Israelites. Well, why? Because that those people are the faithful people of God, just like in the Old Covenant. These were God's faithful people as well. So let's turn then to the New Testament. You know the passage in Matthew 16 where Jesus says that he is uh, going to build his church in Matthew 16 and verse 18. Well, in that same context, just a couple of chapters later, look at Matthew chapter 18. You might be wondering, well, does, does Jesus actually say that the whole church needs to be involved in the business of the church? Well, listen to this in, G- in Matthew chapter 18, um, beginning in verse 15. We've, we've cited this passage often. You probably know it well. Um, but if you don't, this is an important text. Teaches us how to deal when problems arise or when sin arises in the church. If your brother sins, verse 15, Chapter 18, verse 15, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. 
But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. By the way, he's quoting from the law there. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two, if two of you agree on earth about anything, they may ask and it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Amen. You see what Jesus is saying here? All right, there's a pattern for how to handle when a problem arises, when there's sin in the church. If I, if I have a brother who sins, it's not my job to go talk to other people about it. My job is to go to that brother and talk to him about it, that sister, and address that. And it ought to end there. Assuming that sister, uh, that brother is humble and repents, it ought to be done there. There's no reason to bring it to everybody else. The brother sinned. The brother's repented. Therefore, the problem stops there. But what happens when a brother doesn't repent? Well, he says you got to bring two or three others to come with you and as witnesses that this brother is actually disobedient to the Lord. Hopefully even then, the second time you go to them, that person repents and the problem is solved. The problem is the problem is abandoned. No need to bring it before the church. But if the man does not listen, now what? Well, he says, bring it before the church. Well, why? Well, now the church as a whole is supposed to encourage that brother or that sister to repent. And if the brother sister, if the brother listens, then you've won your brother back. If the, if the brother does not listen, the church is now in, entrusted with the role of removing this brother or removing this sister from their midst. Do you see that? The whole church is involved in the work of disciplining a member of the congregation. And this is important for us. This, you see this also in the earliest church in uh, Jerusalem. Uh, the passage that Daniel read for us earlier in Acts chapter 6 illustrates this pattern. When a problem arises in the church that affects the whole church, what do they do about it? The apostles could have said, you know, we're the spokesmen for God. We're the, actually the, the, we're the ones that Jesus entrusted as the foundation of his church. And that would be true, by the way. They could have said, we're just going to deal with this behind closed doors. We're, we're going to address it. It's going to be over. It's not what they did. The apostles called the whole congregation together. Look at verse 2, chapter 6 and verse 2. The 12 summoned the congregation of the disciples and they said, it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer, to the ministry of the word. Verse 5, the statement found approval with the whole congregation. And they chose Stephen, the man, Philip, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, Antioch, and they brought these uh, before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. Notice how they handled this issue when it arose. The apostles didn't solve it. They also didn't just turn the church loose and say, hey, you guys deal with this. You know, They guided the church to say, hey, here's how we think this should be handled. We need to address. This is an important matter. People are being neglected. There's a real problem in the church. It must be addressed. We're not going to sweep it under the rug. We're not going to hide it. We're going to address it head on. But we're also not going to allow a small problem 
though if you were if, if that problem was happening to you, you might not consider it a small problem. But for them, they say, hey, actually, there's some things that are even more important than this problem, like devoting ourselves to the word and to prayer. So the apostles say, hey, we're not going to solve this for you. We're not going to deal with it for you. But here's who you should look for. Look for people who are full of the spirit. Look for people who are full of wisdom. Appoint them. You all choose them and let them lead you in addressing this problem so that the work of God can continue. Notice this. The, the apostles are equipping the church to be able to do that work of ministry to make sure that those brethren are taken care of and everyone is provided for. And in so doing, I would argue here that the earliest church in Jerusalem is setting a pattern for addressing matters with the whole congregation. When a, when a, when a problem arises that affects the whole church, then the whole church should be involved in addressing it. You see this again in Acts chapter 15 when the issue comes up over whether or not new, people who are not Jewish, gen, Gentiles, people from the other nations need to be circumcised in order to be saved. Some people came from Judea. They were preaching that in the church of Antioch. What are we going to do about it? Well, they called, they called a meeting in Acts chapter 15 with the apostles and elders. But notice this also. It wasn't just the apostles and elders in Acts chapter 15 and in verse 22. It seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Bersabbas and Silas, leading men among the brethren. And they sent this letter by them. Notice again here, the earliest church is setting a pattern of when there's a problem that's affecting the whole church, the whole church gets involved in knowing about the problem and in working towards a solution when it comes. I'll just add, uh, it's in Acts 13 in verses 1 to 3 that the church at Antioch, it's the whole church in Antioch who obeys the Spirit's commands to set apart Ball, uh, Saul and Barnabas um, and to send them out to do the work of God. The whole church is called to set these guys apart, pray for them, lay their hands on them, and send them out to do God's work. Not just a few guys involved in that. Um, the whole church is involved in, uh, in the business that involves the whole church. I'll just, I'll just cite one other uh, thing on this. All the letters. Um, Read the letters. What are the letters, the epistles we've been reading together this year? We've been reading these epistles together, these letters that have come from the apostles. What, are, what was the point of those letters? Let me ask it this way. Where were those letters supposed to be read? In the church? When the whole church comes together? Why? Because those were instructions, not just for the leaders of the church. Those were instructions for the whole church. In fact, in Colossians 4 and verse 16, Paul expressly tells them, hey, when you get this letter, read it, not just in private, read it before the whole church. Let me read that just to make sure I'm not misquoting that. When this letter is read among you, have it read also in the church of the Laodiceans. And for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea also. That is, the, the, the letters that Paul was sending were not just for a couple of people in the church to read and then, and then keep it secret. No, they were for the whole church to read out loud. And that's why if you read Romans, as we are and finishing up this week, um, if you read 1 Corinthians, you know how those letters end? Amen. Why do they end with the amen? Because the whole church is supposed to respond and say, amen. This is the word of God and we agree with it and we will obey it. That's why letter after letter, and there's only a few, a few exceptions to this, 
end throughout the New Testament with an amen. Because Paul is saying this is the word of God or Peter or John, but also he's encouraging all the church who's hearing God's word to respond in agreement and say, yes, this is God's word and we will obey it. We will follow it. So the letters are read to the whole church. I'll just add uh, the letters are addressed to the whole church, even when uh, in cases where uh, a church has um, appointed leaders like elders and deacons. Read the intro to Philippians, which we'll be reading next month in June together. Read the intro to that. Uh, to all the saints of Philippi with elders and deacons. That is, the letter's not just to the elders and the deacons. It's to all the saints. It's to the whole congregation. Um, and, and, and we've talked about this already in our Bible study. Uh, the whole church was involved in discipline. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul tells the church, when they're assembled together and, and God is there in the midst, and Paul says, I'm there in spirit. You need to deliver this man over to Satan. Why when the whole church is there together? Well, because it's the whole church who is to make this decision together that here's somebody in violation of the will of God. They're no longer acting like part of this covenant community. Therefore, they should be removed from the community. We could talk about many other things um, uh, throughout the churches, but I think that's sufficient to make the point. So now the question then comes for us. What does this mean for us as a group of God's people, as a church of God's people? Um, we're blessed. I think this is our first Sunday to announce this. Um, we're blessed to have two new members who joined our group, uh, Sister Davida, Sister Tamara. What does this mean for members of the congregation? Why do we even do that? Why do we say like somebody's joining the congregation? Well, well, the point is that once we've joined ourselves together as the people of God, now we are committed to working together to do God's work in this world. It's not just like something you could say like, hey, I'm I, I, like use on a resume or something. I'm, I'm, I'm part of this club, you know, or I'm, you know, like that's not the point of this. The point of this is to say, hey, we're joining ourselves to this local group of disciples so that we can work together to carry out God's mission to be a kingdom of priests. You know, that same language that is used throughout the Old Testament is used in 1 Peter 2 to speak of all disciples, not just the leaders. And that's part of the problem with sometimes people calling leaders the priests is actually it's not just the leaders in the churches that are priests. It is all of God's people who are made a kingdom of priests and who are called to live as God's, God's priests in this world. So what does this mean for us? First, uh, this means that every member of, the, of this congregation should feel both a sense of obligation and a sense of privilege to participate in the work of God's church. Every member should be involved in the work of God's church. Let me just show you one place where this is stressed. Ephesians chapter four, Ephesians chapter four. And listen to what this says um, in Ephesians chapter four. He says in verse 11 that God gave to the church, Jesus gave to the church, some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. To a mature man, to the measure of the stature, which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, listen to this, verse 14. We are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up into all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. 
from which from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Now, do you hear what Paul is saying here in this text? Let's start with this. Why did God give leaders to the church? Why did God give apostles and teachers and preachers um, and, uh, and, and prophets and pastors to the church? You know what he doesn't say here? He doesn't say God gave leaders to the church so they could do the work for the church. He doesn't say that. It's not the job of the leaders of the church to do the work of God for the church. You know what it is their job to do? To equip the church for the work of ministry. That is to say, the role of leaders in the congregation of God's people is to equip every member so that they can go out and do their part to build up the body of Christ. Do you see the church that way? It's not about a few people doing all the work. It's about every one of us finding our role and our part that we can play and fulfilling that. And I'll add this too. It's not about my voice being heard. It's not about, I just want people to know what I have to say or what I think. It's not about me insisting on getting my way. It's not about getting my way in the congregation. Like, oh, this is about the whole church coming together. That means I get to, I get to have my say. I get to you know, get, get my way when it comes to decision-making. It's about doing my part to ensure that the, that the body of Christ is built up. It's about be, being willing to submit to those who will lead and guide so that I can learn and grow and become a working member who is working to build up the body of Christ. That's how the church of God is built up. That's how we grow into maturity. It's not by a small percentage of people doing most of the work. It's by every member doing their part to see God's church built up. All right, secondly, let me just say this. What about our church? A healthy church addresses with the whole church, business that affects the whole church. All right, when matters arise in our congregation, I wanted to do this now because um, we're kind of at a peaceful time and you never, you never know when that might change. It's good for us to talk about these things now so that when problems arise, we know how to handle them. When a problem arises, when an issue arises that affects the whole church, when business arises that pertains to the church, um, the whole church should be involved in the process of working through that together. Now, I'll tell you what happens if we don't obey this text. You know, when business pertaining to the church is hidden from the church, you know what it breeds? Suspicion. Suspicion. Instead of trust, now it's suspicion. Why aren't they telling everybody? Why is it so hidden? Why can't we talk about this as a family? I thought we were family. You're hiding these things? Now, I will say this. There are sometimes matters, particularly when there's sin between one person, we just already talked about. That shouldn't be brought before the whole church. It should be addressed first person to person. But when there is a problem that pertains to the whole church, it needs to be addressed with the whole church. If we don't do that, it breeds suspicion rather than trust. And I would argue also it breeds fear rather than love in a congregation. So the whole church needs to be involved when business affects the whole church. Every member should be informed about matters pertaining to the whole church, and they should participate in the decision-making process. When issues that arise affect the whole congregation, the whole congregation should be involved in, in, in addressing them. I'll cite again Acts chapter 6, where the apostles didn't solve the problem for the church. They guided the church on how to handle it in a healthy way, and then they entrusted the church to solve that issue and to appoint people who could lead them in addressing that need. So, a healthy church 
not only has every member see it as their obligation, their privilege to do their part, but also a healthy church involves the whole church when there's matters that pertain to the whole church. Lastly, let me suggest this. What about this church? Every member should submit to the spirit and submit to spirit-led leaders who are in submission to God's instructions in the church. Every member should submit to spirit-led leaders who are in submission to God's instructions for the church. Now, I say this admitting that I'm up here in a sense leading today. So let me just clarify what I mean by that. What I mean by that is this. If I get up here and I preach and I teach something that is not in line in accordance with what the Holy Spirit teaches, it is the congregation's job and responsibility to correct that. It is the congregation's job and responsibility not to say, oh, we're just going to follow him. He's our leader. You know, he's the guy, you know, so we're going to follow him. Uh, if Ben or I gets up here and preaches or teaches something or any other brother or sister in class is teaching something um, that is in violation to the will of God, it is the congregation's responsibility to, to respond and say, that's not the will of God. It means we will obey the Lord rather than men. On the flip side, though, when teachers of God, Spirit-led leaders get up and they teach us and they instruct us on things that are in accordance with God's will. It's my responsibility as a member of God's body to be submissive to that. We'll come back to that next week. But I just want to say that because um, I don't want us to get the idea, well, this is just like a, a straight dem democratic uh, decision-making model here for the church. Like it's just a pure democracy. We all just come, we vote, and the majority wins. I don't think that's the pattern for how decisions are made in the church. We'll talk more about that next week. Um, but having said that, it is our responsibility as the congregation to ensure that we are moving in line with God's will and not the will of men. And that includes even when leaders may get up and lead us astray. It's our responsibility to say, no, we're not going there because the word of God says this. And God forbid, but should the day come and perhaps the day will come when I say something that's out of line with the scriptures. Uh, it ought to be that the church stands up and says, that's not right. We'll let you know. Amen. Amen. And it ought to be that way. It ought to be that way. Why does this matter? A uh, couple of things right before we end. This matters because this is Christ's church, not our church. Uh, if this is Christ's church, then our aim is to be fully submissive to his will. His will is that his church would grow. His church would be built up. Well, the way that his church grows and his church is built up is by each one of us staying attached to the head and each one of us being involved in the work, working with him. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians, we are co-workers with God. It's a crazy thought uh, that God would let me work alongside him. That's a crazy thought. But that's what he says. We are co-workers with God. And we ought to think of ourselves that way. Secondly, th this matters because uh, it's not only Christ's church. This is the way he wants it to be. But this is the crucified Christ church. This is the Christ who died for us on the cross, who, who went to the cross, suffered and died. This is not some evil Lord insisting on his way when he's just out for his own selfish ends. This is the God of heaven and earth who made us in his image and then loved us so much that when we ruined the thing that he had made, he sent his only son. He gave the ultimate sacrifice so that we might be set free and made a part of his treasured possession again. God has done all the hard work of making us priests. Therefore, we ought to do, we ought to respond by offering our lives back to him in obedience to his will. Finally, this matters because this is how the church gets built up. 
Churches don't grow. You guys know this. Churches don't grow by 5% of the people doing 95% of the work. That's not how churches grow. Churches grow when every member of the congregation says, you know what? It's my responsibility to do the work of God, to join with every other member and to carry out the mission of God in this world. It's my job to speak the truth in love. It's my job to serve and to minister. That's not, that's not just the job of leaders. That is my job, and it's every one of our jobs. And so as members of this congregation, it's our responsibility to get involved in the work. I want to tell you, if you don't know how to do that, come and talk to us. Find people who are doing the work of God and go talk to them and say, hey, how do I get involved in helping? How do I get involved in serving? How do I get involved in working alongside you to do God's work together? Now, I'm not giving this lesson because I think this church is doing a really bad job of this. Uh, I actually don't. I think from the beginning, this church has had a healthy attitude. We are all in this together and we're all working together. But as we continue to grow, we need to be reminded sometimes of what God's will is, that God wants the whole congregation to work together in carrying out his mission. I'm giving this reminder, too, because sometimes we can get in our heads that actually, you know, my relationship with God is just between me and him. And actually, the Bible keeps calling us back throughout this to say we are not individuals alone in a partnership with God, but we are a community of God's people, and we are called to act like that. It's not my responsibility just to care for my own salvation. It's my responsibility to care for the salvation of all my brothers and sisters. And even broader than that, the people of God, the people that God has created in his image all over Brooklyn and across this world. So may God help us. This is our mission. As his people, as his congregation, may God help us to carry it out.